Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast. We have a ton of stuff to talk about this week, and also at the end I have an interview with the former Sony BVM technician, who really just gives a great insight into how these things work and some great tips, so stay tuned for that, but let's jump right into the news. So I wanted to start with an update on that component discard pass-through adapter. Um, I'll skip to the end and then kind of go back and explain why we're at where we're at now. But anybody that wants one, Retrofixes.com is going to be taking care of all the pre-orders, and then we'll be selling at least a few of them after the pre-orders have been fulfilled. Um, I have a link in the description of where to go to, to buy it directly, um, and anybody who has emailed me about pre-orders, uh, probably by the time you're watching this, you would have already gotten an email from me um, explaining you know, all the other little details. But um, Retrofixes is willing to do $20 as a pre-order, and then after the pre-orders are done uh, and he has stock of them, he'll sell them for $25 each. So why why we came to this point is kind of an interesting and kind of shitty of a story at the same time. So I figured um, if you wanted to pre-order one, you know, I wanted to get that info out right away. But here's kind of the story behind it. So when I first mentioned doing this group buy pre-order for these SCART adapters, I figured one or two people might be interested, and it turned out a lot of people were. Which is awesome. That's great. That just means we figured out a way to solve a problem that a bunch of people were having. So totally cool. It just also means that I'm going to have to do it a little bit different because I live in a tiny little apartment now, and access to a car isn't like you know, in the city isn't the same, so it's not like I could take big bundles of boxes back and forth from the post office. So I enlisted some help. Um, I first contacted, uh, obviously, the company that sells them, and they said they cannot sell them outside of Australia. There's no bulk discounts because the manufacturer doesn't make them anymore. They just, it is what it is. Um, and they can't even accept payment from somebody with an address outside of Australia. And it's all due to some rules that it probably makes no difference why. It's just the way it is. So I contacted a store, and I don't want to say their name because they have done a lot of good for the retro gaming community and they sell some cool stuff. So I'm just going to say a store, a web store. Um, and I kind of told them about, you know, hey, it's a pass-through adapter. Um, you know, it's something that a lot of people have already wanted to buy. You'll probably get a few returns because even though I've said it a million times, it's just a pass-through adapter, not a converter, but some people just aren't going to get it until they bring it home. And they seemed really interested. They said, oh yeah, great, we're actually really looking to get into a lot of these component parts, and you know, we're looking forward to adding this stuff to our store. And I kind of gave them a list of what to do, and you know, made sure, hey, you know, we have people that could help, just let me know, we could set up you know, forwarding addresses, whatever you need. I guess they didn't listen to any of that, contacted the company directly, and then got back to me and said, yeah, it's too much effort, we're not going to do it. And I, I didn't really know how to respond to that. So it's not really how you would want to talk to somebody who, after you just said you want to get into selling stuff to the retro gaming community, more parts and stuff. So I just, I responded with, whatever, I'll do it myself. And they responded back a couple of minutes later. Yeah, well, look, you know, after the price of these things, we'd have to sell them for like $40 anyway. Now I'm pissed. So... Obviously, if if you've never sold anything online, you know, any kind of retail, like, 
scenario. You might not grasp that if you buy something for $10 and you sell it for $15, you're probably losing money at the end of the day between shipping and taxes and, you know, not even counting in your time, really. There's just so many things going into it, even selling on eBay. A couple weeks ago, I made a comment like how much money you would lose selling through eBay, and uh, somebody posted in the comments, oh, what are you talking about? The eBay sales calculator's right here. Always hidden fees. Always. Everywhere you look. You know, you buy a, a shipping label for 8 bucks, and it, or you charge 8 bucks for shipping, turns out to be 10 You know, little things that add up. So the fact that they need to make a large profit on something is totally fine, and we as a community that buys weird shit should be fine with that because a lot of people aren't stepping up to the plate. But once I heard going to sell them for about 40 bucks, that's ridiculous. That is just... That's insane, and that's borderline ripping people off. So I emailed Wes from Retrofixes, and I told him what happened, and I said, will you just do me a favor and do this? You know, I don't know. You might have to deal with a lot more trouble than it's worth, but, you know, would you take one for the team? And he said, absolutely no problem. You know, he was willing to do a cheaper price for people that wanted to do the pre-order. Um, and then in talking to the company in Australia, um, we might actually buy the entire stock they have left um, just so we could have some. They don't have much. I think it's just over 50, which is close to what the pre-orders that people showed interest in was. So, cool. This might work out for all of us. Um, and then solving the problem of actually getting the parts from the company to retrofixes, um, somebody named Cameron emailed me and is actually willing to go down and pick them up for us. So, holy shit, what an awesome ending to a kind of a weird and fucked up story. Sorry for all the squares in this right off the bat, but, I mean, so that's, you know, two people completely stepped up to the plate to help, and I, after two other people, me and this the store failed miserably. I failed because I couldn't do it myself because I don't have the room. The store failed because I guess they wanted to rip people off. And Cameron stepped up and said, nope, I'll go and pick these things up and ship them right to you. And Wes said, no problem, I'll take care of all of the distribution and just do it for anybody that wants it. So, um, kind of a great ending to a weird story. I'm sorry for rambling right off the bat. I promise the rest of this week's roundup will be a lot more straightforward. But I just wanted to give everybody the full background. Because both to answer why they're going to be 20 bucks and not cheaper... You know, why it's taking so long to get the pre-orders out and pretty much just, you know, having the good ending of two people just totally offer to chip in and help and kind of make it better for everybody like me that needs one of these things. So thank you to both of these guys very much and to everybody that already sent me your email pre-ordering. Um, you should have an email by now from me. Um, so I'm sorry that you have to now go buy it from a different place, but it should be pretty straightforward and you should get them by the end of the month provided shipping isn't too crazy. So, cool, and thanks to everybody that's helping with this. Okay, on a much lighter note, the We Homebrew channel is now open source. The team behind it, uh, after working on it for, I think, almost 10 years now, has decided to actually release the full source code to the public. Um, and this is great. This is just another example of a great team of people that had an awesome software, now just kind of releasing it for everybody to use so it just doesn't get lost in history. So thanks to those guys for making a really, really awesome piece of software, and now for releasing it to everybody else that needs to use something like that. Next, Ben Heck just uploaded a video on how he tried to reverse engineer the Game Boy printer. So if you're a fan of his videos and like seeing old technology pulled apart and kind of reverse engineered, you'd definitely enjoy this one, just like his other videos. 
The creator of the Ultra HDMI mod for the N64 just added two new products to his website. The first is the UltraSave, which is a device for $20 that allows you to plug in your N64 cartridge and save the save game to your computer for use either in emulators, uh, ROM carts, or just to back up your save game. And for that price, I think that's pretty awesome, because I'm sure many of us have older cartridges with our original save games on them from when we were kids. The other thing is he updated the N64 drive. So the 64 drive is a ROM cart kind of like an EverDrive, just made by him. And I believe this supports uh, Compact Flash as well as SD. And it has a, a, a Wi-Fi module built in. It's got a bunch of cool updates to it. Uh, and this is going to be about $200. Um, to be honest, I emailed Marshall about all this because I wasn't sure how new they were, if it all came out this week or if I had just missed it in their old products, but Marshall hasn't responded to an email um, in about a, almost a year, I think. So if anybody knows him, you know, and anybody can get an update, um, just definitely let me know and I'll post it, uh, whether it's an email that I'll read or, or anything. I just, uh, you know, I guess he's still kicking and he's still making products, but he's kind of hard to get a hold of, and I certainly want to help promote all the stuff he's working on, but it's kind of hard to do so if you have no correspondence with him whatsoever. So if anybody knows him, just let him know, like, hey, it might be a good idea to just post an update on your website or Facebook or something and let people know what you're up to. Next, Darksoft just posted a video of his Neo Geo ROM carts menu in action. So the menu is almost finished, and there's still no word on when the ROM cart itself will be available, but as soon as there's any solid news, I'll definitely keep everybody updated. Last week I talked about the Kickstarter for the Genesis game Tanglewood, and the developer of that project has now posted a video that shows his original Genesis development kit. So even if you don't plan on backing that Kickstarter or you don't really care about the game, I actually thought the video was really cool, and I really enjoyed kind of seeing the development tools that people were using back in the 90s, and I guess in the late 80s too, to make these games. So if you're interested, definitely check it out. Next, the Ninja Gaiden soundtrack is getting a full remaster. Both the NES and arcade versions will be released on CD, vinyl, and digitally. If you submit your address, I guess you'll get notified whenever pre-orders are open. Um, and obviously, you know, anytime you mix music and gaming, two of my favorite things, um, I'm totally on board for stuff like this. I'm just really curious, though. Is it Ninja Gaiden or Ninja Gaiden? Ninja Gaiden. Ninja Gaiden. Normally they say Ninja Gaiden. The unreleased Jaguar game Thea Realm Fighters just had a demo ROM released on the internet. So both the ROM release and the game itself both had interesting stories behind them. So I guess Nicholas Persians, the guy who does all the really awesome rotary mods for the Atari Jaguar, the same mod that I actually um, reviewed on my site, um, he bought the uh, ROM of the demo and released it to everybody because he wanted to share it with the community. So. Another awesome uh, contribution to the community by him. Um, and I guess the game itself was kind of interesting because it was, you know, a blatant Mortal Kombat ripoff. And some of the actors were some of the original actors for Mortal Kombat, including Daniel Piscina, who I actually just met a few weeks ago at the Retro World Expo, which was awesome. So it's pretty neat, and this is something I'm definitely going to try as soon as that new Jaguar ROM cart is released. Um, and... 
it's kind of cool that we're still getting unreleased games from that era, and I hope the full game is eventually released. Um, it's not... The game wasn't completed, so I think the demo might be all all that's left of it. It's still worth trying, though, um, and definitely check out the page in the video if you're interested. Nintendo just put a bunch of 3DS and Wii U games on sale, and that sale's gonna last till December 5th. It's not one of those quick one-day, you know, Cyber Monday or Black Friday sales. So I figured I would post the link for anybody interested. A remastered version of the game Wonder Boy is available on Steam. I guess it was released about a month ago, but they just had a big update that patched a few bugs, and now it's also 40% off. So any fans of that game, uh, definitely check it out. Me personally, um, I'm on a PC 10 plus hours a day uh, for all the different work that I do, so I try not to PC game at all. It's just too easy for me to get distracted and start answering emails and stuff. Um, so I always prefer console or handheld gaming. But, you know, obviously PC gaming is massive, so if you're into Steam and these things, definitely check it out. Smoke Monster has just added a mirror of his ROM sets to a different file hosting site. I guess um, certain international users weren't able to access it through the original one. Um, so now, uh, if you Google Smoke Monster ROM sets, it'll still bring you to that same forum page, but now there'll be multiple places for you to download it. So this should really take care of everybody on the planet who needs these things. And once again, I'm just a huge fan of them because it's everything I want all in the same place. So thanks to him for making these, and uh, I'm really glad now there's two places to get them. Someone just created three brand new levels for the Sega Master System version of Sonic 2. I guess it was part of a coding competition, and there's three, you know, completely new levels based off of the Sonic 2 SMS game. So anybody who's into that stuff, definitely follow the link, because it looks really great. A new version of the 64 Doom ROM toolkit was just released, which I believe is a piece of software that allows you to port the Doom PC games to the N64, because Doom 64 wasn't the same as Doom 1. Um, I've actually played a, a version, an old version of this, uh, and it worked pretty well, but supposedly there's lots of good improvements that have happened since then. Um, so if anybody has any experience with this toolkit or the other things you can do with it, please post in the comments. I'd love to hear how far you can go with stuff like this. I hear you could even port different versions of the game into, um, so it's definitely on my list of things to try out whenever I get around to it. Next, Extrems has just updated the Game Boy interface software with a few bug fixes and optimizations. Now the Game Boy interface software is what you would use with a GameCube and the Game Boy Player, just instead of the Game Boy Player's boot disk. This software will allow that to run much better, and in my opinion this is, at the moment, the best way to play Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance games on a TV. He also released the source code for the Game Boy Advance as GameCube controller. So um, that's another awesome thing too, so anybody that needs to use that code in their software will be able to now implement that so you could use a Game Boy Advance as a controller. So uh, thanks again to Extrems and awesome work as always. Someone on the Nest Dev forum just announced they started work on an FPGA based Super Nintendo. So I think stuff like this is incredible and uh, with products like the AVS you could see how far FPGAs can go because that is a you know, in my opinion, a really accurate way to play Nintendo games. 
Um, and it's fairly cheap too, all things considered. So hopefully this SNES project will, will continue to progress um, and hopefully we'll all have uh, prototypes soon to, to test out and give our opinions on. But there's no solid news on release dates or pre-orders or anything even remotely close to that. But as always, I'll keep everybody posted. Um, and because the SNES is my favorite system, you bet anytime there's any news at all, I'll be talking about it. So good luck to the person doing the development and uh, I'm really excited about this one. Now on to the Q&A stuff. The first is a question about my interview with Johan from Arcade Forge. So I guess Arcade Forge doesn't sell the scanline generator for component video anymore. They only sell the VGA-based one. Um, and I had forgotten to even mention that in the interview. So I actually reached out to Johan about it and asked him. And he said he experienced issues on certain monitors that would result in flickering. Um, it was a very few percentage of the items sold. So he will still build them, but only on request. But a good alternative to that is just using the current Scanline Generator 3000, the SLG 3000, and using a passive adapter to route component video through it. The only thing is you would need an external power adapter because the SLG 3000 runs off the 5 volt VGA pin, and if you're doing uh, a component to VGA dongle, then obviously there's no voltage. But if you actually look at the SLG 3000, on the side is a 5 volt and ground terminal block, just like with his... Um, sync stripper. So it seems like a really great workaround for anybody that just wants to add scan lines to 480p component. Next is another question based on the arcade stuff that we talked about last week. Um, and Sammy Sness wanted to know if he could use that product, the Pi 2 JAMA, and hook it up to a Sony PVM. Um, while I think technically you could do that, you could probably use some adapters, um, it's not the easiest way to do it. Uh, and in fact, I would recommend either waiting until they release their SCART version of it, which um, if they go through with it, will have a SCART output and even a serial input, so you could go all analog on a Raspberry Pi. That would be pretty cool. I hope that's, I hope that's not too far away. Um, but for the short term, you might want to just buy a Raspberry Pi 3 and a VGA adapter for it. It's called the GERT 666 VGA adapter. I know I don't that name doesn't make any sense to me, but basically you're able to uh, use one of those to get direct analog output, and you would need to use either a sync combiner circuit or run it through an Extron RXI device in order to do RGBHV to RGBS. But right now I've been playing with it and I got it to work. It's just pretty complicated. So what I'm really hoping to do is find somebody willing to make like a recall box or a RetroPie image that automatically outputs in 240p analog right through a VGA adapter like this. Um, I, I don't think I'm good enough at it to be able to pull that off, but if anybody watching is, uh, please you know email me or post in the comments because it would make everybody's life so much easier if we could just buy a RetroPie, um, or I'm sorry, buy a Raspberry Pi, um, get a VGA adapter, and then just load your version of the software on here that's pre-configured for 240p analog because there's just a lot of tweaking involved. You have to load it on a Linux or a Mac in order to get to some of the partitions, and it's a gigantic pain. And also, for anybody that wants to buy the GERT VGA adapter, um, it worked well, but you have to assemble it. And I guess it's for export reasons or something, but it's certainly not hard to assemble, but if you were expecting something that you could just get in the mail and plug in, you actually have to solder all those through-hole resistors and all the individual pins right to it. So it's a good solution, it's just uh, all of it's a bit convoluted still. Um, so hoping that Arcade Forge just sells a SCART kit for it soon, 
because um, it'll just be plug and play. Uh, but until then, I would suggest just doing it yourself. And you could always, when you're done, just pull off the VGA adapter and upgrade to the new one when it comes out. So at least you're not wasting your money or anything. Next, I had a few questions in regards to that mod where you could put a Game Boy Advance backlit screen into a Game Boy Color. Um, and to answer the questions that I got, um, I guess people were wondering why you would even want to do that since a Game Boy Advance can play Game Boy and Game Boy Color games. Um, and in my opinion, some people just like the feel of that style handheld. Um, it is cool. I mean, a lot of people just like to mod stuff because it's fun to mod stuff. Um, but I do understand that, that having that, you know, hold on from the bottom feel is important to some people because that's how they prefer to play. Um, I actually find it more comfortable to play on those older ones as well. But I don't know if I would consider gutting a AGS-101 for the screen um, just for that reason. And somebody else asked, or... or pointed out that there are AGS-101 screens on Alibaba. Um, not all of them are real. A lot of them are just third-party copies, and I've gotten one of those before, and it is bad. It was uh, somebody who had put it in a standard original Game Boy Advance, the ones with the buttons on the side, and I, um, I when I got it, I mean, it, I didn't even need to do a side-by-side -side comparison. I turned it on and was just walking around with Link in uh, one of the Zelda games and noticed immediately. So if anybody knows a Link to real AGS-101 screens, maybe new old stock or something like that, uh, please post in the comments. But the ones that I had seen personally were pretty bad, so I certainly wouldn't recommend one of those for this project. Lastly... Corpse413 had a question about RGB SCART cables. So I guess he bought a bunch of them a few years ago, and one of them was giving him trouble with the OSSC, and he wanted to know if he should open it up and mess with it to try to repair it himself. And in my opinion, opening up the SCART end, uh, totally easy. Just open it up, do any mods that you need to it. But anything that's in the console end... Um, I, I don't think it's a good idea to open it up. A lot of the cable manufacturers um, sealed them with epoxy or glue. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I, anyway, it's even if they didn't, it's hard to get the components open or the the actual connector open. So I would leave it alone if you needed to mess with something in the console end. And RGB SCART cables are are such a pain, and the the way that a lot of these companies did them, the actual console manufacturers was pretty pretty weird and I actually talked with Voltar about this a few weeks ago on the podcast and I talk with him on Skype about it on a regular basis and I guess two examples I can give and I'll try to make it as quick as possible is like the Super Nintendo um, generally speaking you know it was pretty easy to make an RGB SCART cable for it but the NTSC cable required uh, capacitors in the SCART head and the PAL cable required resistors to match the PAL standards well, if the motherboard revisions were different for NTSC and PAL, why wouldn't they just put all the components on the board and have a pass-through cable, just like with composite video? Um, and Sega is the worst for this, because for something like the Master System, the RGB lines go directly from the encoder to the multi-out, so that requires you to put the resistors in the console end of the cable, and then capacitors in the SCART head, which is just bad practice altogether on Sega's part. But then you look at something like the MK2000, the Japanese master system, all of the components are on the motherboard and you just need a pass-through cable. So in a perfect world, all we would need is just 
pass through cables with shielded ends and it would solve all of our problems. But that's just not the case. And certain motherboard revisions, such as with the Saturn output, um, different sync, so you need different components in the cables. And the, the new cable manufacturers, the people that are selling today, continue to learn about the different board revisions and adapt their cables to them. And, you know, yeah, it stinks that maybe you bought something a few years ago and the way they make it now is better. But, I mean, these aren't huge companies uh, with unlimited access to funds. These are just, you know, a few people that are testing as many consoles as they can by themselves. But there's just a ton of motherboard revisions for each console. And it's really hard to kind of keep up with what you need. Um, I guess, you know, in a perfect world, when you have to work with what you already have... Um, you know, you would pop open each console, use an oscilloscope, measure everything, and put a new output with shielded cable or something. But uh, it's just, you know, that's not what everybody's going to want to do. So you just have to kind of work around what you have. And it's just up to us as a community and them as cable manufacturers to work together to make sure that their cables are built correctly with all the right components in them. And any time we find mistakes, to be diligent and update the designs immediately. Um, you know, it's not fair if I bought a cable today just to find out it's the wrong resistors or something, and then I have to buy another one. But we're kind of all in this together, and we're doing our best, so, you know, it's just something we all have to deal with. Uh, luckily, though, if your problem's just in the SCART end, then it's super, super easy, especially for things like one of the cable manufacturers wasn't putting the capacitors in, so just by adding that in by hand, it was super easy, and that made it compatible with other stuff. So I hope I didn't go on too long of a rant about that, but um, I, I should get uh, one of the cable manufacturers on here to talk about this themselves soon. Um, I'll reach out to both and see if they're interested, but I think... Uh, Everybody, especially um, those people that actually understand in-depth analog video signals like Zach and Steve and you know all the guys that are way smarter than me, I think we'd all really like to hear their point of view and why they make cables a certain way. So uh, I'll try to get both of them on at separate times to talk and see and get their opinion. Okay, up next I have an interview with a former Sony technician that specialized in BVM and PVM monitors. He used to do calibration and repair, and he has so much information and insight into these things. It was really, really awesome uh, talking on the phone with him. And I didn't want to bug him too much because I probably could have stayed on the phone at least twice as long. But hopefully, um, after listening to the interview, if we all have questions, maybe I could just keep a list of all the questions and then have him back on uh, a little while in the future. But I just a uh, really great source of info, and he has an eBay page where he sells a lot of pre-calibrated Sony BVM monitors and some of the accessories to go with them. So any of us that have been looking for a BVM for a long time that don't mind paying top dollar, this is the guy to buy it from because you're going to get a perfectly calibrated monitor. Um, and, you know, it's going to be packed and shipped correctly. And, yeah, it's way more expensive than, you know, than stumbling across one, you know, used somewhere. But if you have the money to spend and you just want something that's great, this is definitely the person I would recommend buying through. So the link is in the description to his eBay store. Um, and for anybody watching on YouTube, it's audio only. So sorry there's no uh, no exciting views for it. But... Uh, I'm sure you guys will enjoy it anyway, and I'm really looking forward to having him back on again once I can think of a million other questions to ask. So uh, here you go. Hope you guys enjoy it, and I'll see you next week. 
a former Sony t- tube TV technician and current eBay seller of pretty awesome BVM monitors. How you doing, Pat? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for doing this. Um, there are so many people that email me questions all the time about uh, Sony PVM and BVM monitors, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to finally talk to somebody that really has a ton of experience with this. Super. Um, do you want to give just a little bit about your background and what you used to do for Sony? Uh, well, I, I was a Sony tech. Uh, I specialized just in the PVM and BVM series. Uh, retired in 2001, so really it was before the the uh, super high def stuff. Uh, but uh, I have tons of experience in from the uh, five inch, eight inch, fourteen inch, all the way to thirty two inch. Uh, uh, CRT monitors. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. So now you, uh, you were the main uh, focus, I guess, was the calibration of them, correct? Well, also, yeah, general service and calibration, both. Uh, it, it's, it's one job. Uh, one person does it all. Yeah. Cause it's actually, it's funny. It's not only am I having a really hard time finding anybody that works on CRTs at all. Most of the people that still do CRT calibration refuse to do any hardware work on them as well. At least today. That's- I don't understand why, because you have to do the hardware service before you can do the calibration. That's what I would think, too. I mean, if you have a monitor that potentially has bad capacitors, then how could you possibly do a correct calibration on it? So You can't. Uh, and uh, every monitor that is out of calibration has some bad capacitors somewhere. Uh, otherwise, you could calibrate it. And when you can't calibrate it, you got to service it first. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so uh, out of curiosity, how much would Sony normally charge for a service like that? Because I think a lot of people don't seem to realize, you know, even the, the really high-end BVMs that you're spending a few thousand on now, those used to be twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 back when they were brand new. So I was always curious how much the original uh, calibrations used to cost. Uh, it varied depending on the model number, uh, but uh, usually a minimum of two fifty and an average of about four fifty. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. That's funny. That's that's more than uh, that's more than I paid for a lot of the monitors I've owned in my life. <laughs> so Absolutely. Th- well, some of those monitors, you know, you said twenty or thirty thousand. Some went as high as sixty thousand when they were loaded with all the modules. Oh, so wow, really? some of them were expensive. Oh, I didn't realize it went that high, actually. Yes. Do you remember which were the most expensive ones? Uh, the BVM D32E1WUs and the BVM A32E1WUs. Oh wow! I think I actually have the E series of that, so I'm I'm pretty lucky to have stumbled across one. Right, you sure are. So uh, the one question I get all the time is, "What is the best monitor ever made?" Um, and the general consensus among the gaming guys is the 20-inch BVMs. Is that correct? Uh, well, personally, I, I don't think so. Uh, I think the two best monitors ever made were the, uh, the D24 and the D32s. Uh, the A24 and A32 are equally as good because they use the same CRTs, but, uh, the A is probably a little better. Uh, but uh, for the average person to find an A and a BKM 68X, it's not possible. There just isn't any more BKM68Xs that allow you to use uh, RGB or component. So I would say the best two is certainly the D32, followed up second by the uh, uh, the uh, D24, and thirdly by the uh, D20. Oh, interesting. And then after that would be the 20F1U. 
So is that because they have a thousand lines versus nine hundred, six hundred, and uh, and lower? Uh, not truly. Uh, the advantage, I think, of the uh, number one, the D thirty two, that has the ability to calibrate itself perfectly. And when I say perfect, I mean that. Uh, that means the uh, the calibration can come out so that there's no errors anywhere on the screen. You can do it literally uh, dot by dot. You can adjust uh, the three guns. Uh, you can do that with the D32. You can almost do that with the D24. You can't quite do it with the D20, and you definitely can't do it exactly with the uh, 20F1U. But uh, overall, the 20F1U is by far the easiest to obtain uh they tend starting to be expensive now uh they uh, been, two years ago i was selling them for four or five hundred and now they're going for you know a thousand to fifteen hundred uh, but uh the the reason the f uh, f20 is so popular is they made so many of them it was the most popular monitor in the world for broadcast and professional use uh, there's a lot fewer made of all the other models. Uh, starting in the, after the 2000s, the D20 came into effect. And, of course, it's a little better than the 20F1U because it has the ability to do uh, 480p and 480i, where the 20F1 does not. Uh, hmm. So, you know, there, there's pluses and minus on all of them. The, the biggest minus on the D24 and the D32 is the unavailability of CRTs. Uh, and if you ever need a CRT for one of those, I mean, it's almost forget it. You just can't find them. Oh, jeez. Uh, there are CRTs available for the uh, D20 and the 20F1Us, however. So the actual that- um, CRTs that were in the different 20 inches, so something like an A-series, was the CRT used in that the same as the rest of them, or is that actually a, a different type? No, the CRT uh, is used in the A20F1U, the 20F1U, uh, the uh, PVM uh, 20M4U, all those three use the same CRT. Wow, that's, you know, I never actually knew that. So the um, the advantage of the BVMs uh, is actually the, the ability to have the higher calibration options. It's in the, the electronics and not the tube? Uh, it's a combination of both, but uh, there <clears throat> there is more... Uh, adjustments available on the better monitors. Uh, in other words, there, there's more fine adjustments available uh, where you don't have it on like the M4. You, you have a very limited amount of adjustment. Uh, even though it's the same CRT, there's not the electronics there. When you get all the way to the A series, then they have a buffer board in there, which allows you, gives you even more options for servicing and accurate, super accurate calibration. Gotcha. So that's actually something that uh, I I myself have as a problem, as well as many emails or people that were able to get an A-series BVM that have composite and S-video cards, as well as the SDIs, but not the RGB component cards. And some of these, mine has uh, less than 2,000 hours on it. So some of these are are pretty mint condition, but there's no way to actually put that RGB signal in. Um, And, you know, the availability of that board, the BKM68X, I saw in the past two and a half years, I saw one pop up on eBay and that's it. So I'm assuming that's pretty much gone forever, right? Well, yeah, they made less than 500 of those boards worldwide. 
Uh, and I, I don't have the figures anymore because that all happened after I retired, actually. The A-Series came out after I was gone. But in talking with some other guys, I, I think they made less than 250 of them. So, you know, finding them is a little tough. I've sold two in the last three years. Uh, and I was very fortunate to get them. It was really by accident. I, I happened to purchase a, a couple of uh, A20s that had the BKM 68Xs, which was super rare. Hmm. Uh, I do have a fellow that has a couple of boards, and we're still negotiating price. He's 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 up pretty crazy prices right now. <laughs> uh, the, I think the going price on a BKM 68X is about three thousand. Oh wow, that's insane. Yes, I agree. So I had a guy a... in. Oh, sorry. I had a guy in Brazil during the Olympics that offered me even more. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jeez, that's crazy. Um, yes. So is there any way around this at all for people that happen to stumble across an A-series? Can you get uh, a component to SDI converter that will accept 480i uh, or 240p signals? Or is there really just nothing you can do? Well, I don't think there's much you can do. Uh, I, I made an attempt to... Uh, one of your uh, gamers uh, that I had sold a couple of monitors to called with that exact same problem. And I went ahead and shipped him uh, a couple of AJ or an AJ um, an adapter that converted uh, RGB to SDI. Uh, and uh, I even sent him a generator along with it, a Tektronic generator. And uh, he was unable to get it to work, uh, certainly on 240 and very badly on 480. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not a gamer personally. I'm, I'm a technician, so mm-hmm. I'm not into all the various games that are out there myself. I, I don't have access to that. Uh, but I don't think that there's an easy way to do it, to answer your question directly. You either buy the BKM68X or you forget it, or you yank out that picture tube of your A20 and save it for a good uh, D20 or a 20F1U. Yeah, I mean, I think in my situation with, I mean, 2,000 hours on a professional-grade CRT is nothing. That's not even broken in, so... Um, <laughs> oh, no, that's a wonderful tube, yes. Yeah, so I don't. I, I might just leave mine in storage and hope to eventually stumble across a 68X or if somebody, you know, if somebody comes up with something else. But for your, um, for your average tube that has, you know... Just a few, you know, maybe ten, twenty thousand hours on it. Still pretty low, I guess. Um, it, you would actually suggest maybe getting one of the other BVMs that's compatible and just swapping the tubes out. Yeah, that's certainly an option. Uh, the, everybody talks about how many hours should you run before you change a CRT, and and the factory uh, always said thirty thousand hours. But again, that was for super accurate color calibration. And if you had a post house or an edit house or a colorized guy, they needed absolutely perfect color. I'm not sure that's a factor in gaming. Uh, as, as long as the color is good enough to the eye for the average guy, I think the tube is certainly good through uh, 60 or even 100,000 hours. Past that, I think you're really stretching it. But the other side of the coin on that is most of the monitors that you see, or certainly a lot of them that have... 100,000 hours or 110,000 or 90 or whatever, a large number, they probably don't have the original CRT. Uh, Most TV stations and and professional video guys that had these monitors ended up changing the CRTs, maybe a couple of three times even in some of the studios if they had a lot of money, 
provide it wasn't CBS, which by the way that stands for can't buy Sony. Uh, uh, but the bottom line is, is you, you have to know, you have to look inside it and look to see if that tube is really the original CRT. And unless you're you're kind of an expert at it, it's pretty hard to make that definition. You know, it's. That's you'd, funny because that's um, my next question to you was how come I've seen uh, some of these monitors that have. 28, 29,000 hours on them that look terrible and some that have 100,000 that look great. And I guess it's because that was probably the original tube on the first one and a replacement tube on the one with 100,000. That's a possibility. However, that one with less than 30,000 hours that had a bad picture, that may not be the tube. That that very well could be module sneezing service. So that, that's kind of a another thing to think about. Gotcha, gotcha. So... um. The, is there any extra tricks to finding where these monitors are? Um, now, obviously, your eBay store, um, when you sell yours, they're calibrated and you know they come in pretty good condition, uh, and you you charge a very fair price for them. Um, you know, people that are into retro gaming that that really understand what you're getting when you buy a pre-calibrated BVM would all agree. But there are some of us that still just like to find a bargain now and then. And for years, I used to just go around and and find people that I would or find companies that I thought would have to um, any kind of RGB monitor and just kind of say, hey, you know, I I use these for retro gaming. I'll come and pick them all up for free. You don't even have to pay to to throw them out. And a couple of times, I was able to go in and get a stack of PVM monitors for free because somebody. Was was about to charge them to remove them uh and unfortunately all of the places that had those don't have them anymore they're all gone they're all been switched over to flat screens pretty much so um any other tricks do you know of any places that just have piles of these things no i think the piles are pretty much uh thing of the past uh although a few months back i was able to pick up a dozen f1u's but that's kind of a rarity anymore uh, but that, that came from a television station that had them in storage. So uh, I think the first thing, if it was me, uh, and I'm in the Midwest or in the East Coast somewhere, I think I would uh, do a couple of things. Number one, contact all of the uh, junk men, uh, the electronic uh, junkers. Uh, contact them and tell them you'll pay them X dollars for every uh 20-inch Sony in a metal case monitor they come across, you'll pay them X dollars and uh, give them your name and number, and they'll they'll normally call you because uh, they get usually 5 to $10 uh, or maybe up to $30, depending on the state, uh, for junk uh, for these things just by weight. So normally for 25 or $30, you can usually buy them, uh, you know, walk in with cash and hand the guy the money. Uh, the other thing is, if you're really serious about it, then uh, grab your Yellow Pages or your computer and look for any post-edit video house that's anywhere near you and contact those guys. Those guys have the monitors. Most of them have switched over to the OLEDs, but they still a lot of them don't. Uh, a lot of them still have those monitors, and that's where I get most of the monitors that I sell other than a TV station. And the last thing is to contact the TV stations. Um, some of them still have them. They've got them stuck back somewhere in the warehouse, and they'd love to get a few bucks from from them to go pick them up. So that's mine. I, I just have to go hunting. Uh, there, there's no uh, gold mine anywhere. Uh, you just got to go scavenge. Those are all amazing tips. Thanks so much. I actually, um, I just moved to Manhattan, and a half a block away from me is one of the CBS broadcasting studios. But I, I, you know, that was a joke. 
can't buy Sony. That's uh, ABC. Uh, when uh, Sony bought ABC, the first thing everybody said, well, CBS, the guys there said, you can't buy Sony anymore because they're owned by, you know, ABC. Anyway, that's a joke. So <laughs> awesome. Yeah, the, uh, the the biggest regret I have since starting this website is maybe about the same time it actually launched. I happened to stumble across somebody who uh, was in a hospital in California, and the hospital was about to expand, maybe 10 years ago, was going to expand one wing, and they bought uh, 40 uh, PVM 20M2U monitors, um, and they stuck them in storage, and then the project got canceled, and they were getting rid of them for 150 each. And then if you bought them in bulk and could pallet ship them, he would do it for 100 each. If I had known, I would have bought every one of them and just left it in, <laughs> in somebody's garage, barn, whatever, and just kept them for a while because that was a – those monitors, brand new now, still – they're up $1,000, more than that. That's unusual that a hospital would have that because normally they would buy the MDU model. Uh, which is uh, hospital-rated, because the standard uh, M2 is not hospital-rated. You know what? It was the white one. You're right. It was the MDU. Yes, it would have to be, because they they, they can't be spark sparkable in an, uh, an oxygen atmosphere. So they have a different plug, and there's several different circuits internally that are different from the standard one. And there's they don't actually make it better much thicker first. shielding, and there's more grounding wires along the ground planes because of something called uh, 60601 certification. That's my old right. company. We used to build computers for hospitals, which is why I know all that useless info. <laughs> exactly. And uh, they, uh, they all... Uh, none of the uh, MDUs have 16.9 because everything out there was 4.3 uh, uh, for uh, uh, the medical equipment. Mm -hmm. So for somebody that's uh, that has you know one or two PVM or BVMs um, and they're you know they're starting to game on them, the uh, there's somebody that actually invented something that you could put in your game system and it outputs like a, a grid pattern, a color test pattern and things like that. So you could do basic calibration. I guess, you know, your average layman could probably look up a YouTube video on how to calibrate and, and kind of just go along and do it as best as they can. Um, is there any beginner tips that you could give to somebody that's trying to go a little bit farther? And I know we're opening up a can of worms here because obviously, you know, working on CRTs is very dangerous. It's not like popping open a computer. Um, so uh, is, you well, know, is there a middle ground for people to mess around with, or is there really just expert only past a certain point? <clears throat> no, uh, I, I think, uh, number one, they are safe. Um, I, I, that doesn't mean you want your kids to just stick their hands in there when everything's running. But uh, I think the normal care uh, being around the monitor while it's in operation is not a hazard. Uh, I mean, you, you really have to try to get shocked. It's not something that's going to happen by accident normally. Um, as far as trying to calibrate them, there's a couple of things you really need to do before you even attempt it. Number one is to purchase the service manual for that model. Uh, they, they tend to be a little bit technical, but the key thing is they show you the location and the numbers of the adjustments that you would have to make to cure some of the major problems, uh, like the uh, all of the adjustments, for instance, that are on the yoke that allow you to really calibrate it properly, which most guys don't even touch uh, because they don't know what they do. Uh, and you have a service manual, you can go to there and it'll tell you what the TLV or the HV do, HVE does, or they're going to they're gonna let you know. Uh, but uh, without that, I mean, I think trying to calibrate it is, is way beyond. Uh, secondly, 
it must have a verified good calibrated source I'm not sure that all of these discs out here I think the discs are probably okay but I'm not sure about the players uh, I don't know how well these players can actually output whether they are in fact accurate uh, and that's the second thing so uh, finding an accurate generator is probably the key if you're trying to make your monitor exactly right so there is a, a, a Blu-ray player called the Oppo, uh, I think it's the BDP-93, um, and this was verif supposedly verified with an oscilloscope that it outputs uh, in something called source direct mode, uh, that's their name for it, that is 100% uh, accurate to what's on the disc, so, uh, well, and I they will output 480i, so that would be for anybody listening, if you happen to have one of those Oppo players, I would assume that would probably be the easiest thing to do because I was told that that's what um, the studios were using to test their Blu-rays as well. Uh, that's a possibility, uh, although I'm pretty sure that they're using, the, most of the studios that I'm familiar with, they're using the five and $8,000 Tektronix generators, so, uh, which they have calibrated. So, I, you know, I don't know. I right. I mean, I mean, I'm just talking for somebody who might have something at home, you know, using that versus using a $20 uh, DVD player you get at Walmart would be, you know, way better of a, of a chance totally. of getting an accurate it, signal. Of course, one of the things you, you're, what you're talking about there is the ability to do color calibration. Uh, and that's what you would need a really good generator for the BV, all the BVM series have a generator internally, which will generate a, a white screen. They'll generate a grayscale and they'll generate a crosshatch, and they'll generate dots. And those are pretty accurate. They're, they are as accurate as you could ask for, essentially. So using the internal generator to do your basic calibration is fine. If you're starting to talk about color calibration, then you need a BKM-14L, which is the probe, if you want to accurately do color calibration. Interesting. Okay, and that, that's another huge advantage of the BVM over the PVMs then. Absolutely, absolutely. Of course, you take a model like the 20L5, you know, it has uh, internal calibration, too, for color, which is pretty good. Now, are those generally, um, what were those used for, the PVM20L5s? Because I've seen them, you know, most PVMs I've seen in medical use, security, things like that, and then BVMs for the broadcast and post-production studios. But what would a, a midway between monitor like that have been used for? Well, PVM meant professional video monitor, whereas mm -hmm. BVM is broadcast video monitor from Sony. Uh, and I would say that most of the people that, uh, small companies, if you will, are, are single guys that uh, a, a guy does weddings or he does video films or he does commercials, you know, a, a small, small type guy, small company. They like the 20L5s and the 14L5s because they're pretty accurate. The 20L5... Uh, again, uses the uh, same CRT that a 20F1U uses. So, you know, you can yank that tube and slide it right in. Uh, it's a good 800-line tube, uh, and and uh, the 20L5 is uh, also a 800-line uh, tube, or the 14L5 is an 800-line tube. So both of them can give you a really good picture. Gotcha. So for somebody that didn't have the 20 grand to spend but wanted, you know, as close to it as possible, I think the 20L5s were about five or six grand when I looked it up online. I'm not sure if that's accurate yeah. or not, but still. 4900 or something, you could buy a nice 20L5, no question, when they were new. Yeah, so you a know, fraction depends of the price, on the mod, but almost as good. So. Because the uh, HD module that flips into a 20L5 was a couple of grand, or three grand, I think, at the time. Oh, wow. 
That's that's the uh, uh, the uh, HDSDI module. See, right. that, that's another advantage with the 20L5 because it, it will do HD uh, with uh, component or RGB input without yeah. any additional modules. You know what I? That was the one thing I, I really was curious to see when I got my 32-inch BVM is how would some of the HD sources look, and I was absolutely blown away at how good it looked. I mean, it was just. Oh, yeah. You know, blew away any of the cheap LCDs out there nowadays. So, yep, yep, it does. Does a great job. Mm. My favorite monitor by far. Um, so uh, everybody, it's uh, I'll put a link in the description of the video for what your eBay channel is or your eBay um, store is. Uh, and right now, I see you have a couple of monitors, and you also sell a capacitor replacement kit on there. Correct. Yes, these are for the guy that wants to take his 20F1U and uh, make it uh, new-like again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is a, a huge help to people because you know I'm I know just enough to be dangerous, but I'm not I'm not even close to being an expert. So for me to be able to discharge a monitor and replace the capacitors, I, it's totally within my my skill level. But as silly as this might sound. Figuring out which capacitors to buy is, was really intimidating. The first time I, you know, I popped one apart and tried to find it because you go on a site like DigiKey and you know you could spend hours trying to figure out exactly which capacitor is the right replacement. You know, and you have a lot, a lot of them to do. So having a kit that's all in one where you know exactly, you know, you know what you're getting is just a, a huge super help to people. So I'm really glad you sell those. That's uh, I'm sure after this airs, a bunch of people are going to go out and buy them. So. Well, one of the, the big advantages, of course, is like you said, is trying to figure out which to buy. Uh, number one, there's uh, take a horizontal deflection board. There's probably uh, 40 capacitors on that board, maybe more. Uh, but there's only uh, uh, less than 20 that have ever gone bad, uh, depending on the circuit they were in. So the benefit of these little kits is that it gives you the location of the bad of the suspected part. Let's call them. Uh, so that you can go right to it, unsolder it, and drop the new one in. Boom. Uh, it's over and done with. And if you don't have the ability to do that, you can always take your monitor to a normal TV-type repair guy or take your modules like in the F-Series. You just pull them right out and take them to a TV guy and with the capacitors and the, the parts list that shows the values that I, I supply with it. And the professional tech can replace them you know, post-haste, just boom, boom. Uh, so it is a big aid. It, it beats the heck out of having to go buy another uh, module. And, uh, and uh, normally these TV guys don't charge you that much just to change capacitors. Yeah, you know, it's uh, a lot of the guys around the New York City area I've been calling because people, uh, you know, email me all the time. Where can I get my monitor repaired? Where can I get a cap replacement done? Um, and most of the places around New York City just flat out said we don't we don't work on any CRTs anymore at all. So I imagine if we brought them the board, that's way easier to work on. They probably would. But it's funny because a lot of people are just flat out refusing to do any CRT work. Yeah, I think the key, of course, is there's the two modules that in the 20F1U, which, again, the most popular one, uh, the two modules are the, as the deflection module and the video module. And those just unplug. You just pull them out. Uh, the video module's got four connectors that just undo, and the... Uh, uh, deflection module's got one large connector that you unplug. And the, they slide right out, and you've got them in your hand, and you trot them right down to somebody, and they do the service. Uh, all the capacitors that I put in these kits and the parts that I use are all upgraded, too. Uh, they're to the latest version, the latest production changes from Sony. 
so that you're really upgrading the monitor when you do that because they've come upon uh, parts that they've later discovered work better if the value was changed. So these include that. And all the capacitors they include, all are 105 degree centigrade capacitors. So they're the highest temperature that you can get available. So they're going to last even longer after that. Jeez, that's all great tips. That's a, you know, that's, that's awesome. I'm probably going to buy a kit as soon as we hang up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I'll put a link to your eBay store in the description. And I imagine you're probably going to get a bunch of stuff sold by the end of the day that this airs next Monday. So, uh, yeah, thank you so uh, if, much for taking the if, time to do this. If you would, uh, I think uh, putting my uh, email address is probably even better. And people can just email me direct. One of the problems through eBay is if people uh, contact me through the store, they 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 shut down any contact uh, between people on other subjects. So, um, if you want to take it down, I'm Patrick Gravier. That's P A T R I C K G R A V I E R at net zero N E T Z E R O dot net okay well thanks very much and um yeah i mean i just i really appreciate all the info this was just so great finally going to a source of info for this and and getting good answers so thank you for your time you're very welcome i hope it helps somebody that's always good absolutely okay take care and i'll see everybody else next week have a good holiday thank you 